From Jerusalem, Israel, this is From the Midwest to the Middle East, the podcast that explores everything new in U.S. and Israeli economy. Here's your host, Philip Stein. I'm really pleased to be having this podcast today. First of all, this episode is brought to you by Philip Stein and Associates, the largest U.S. CPA firm in Israel, providing U.S. tax services to Israelis, Americans, corporations, startups, and anyone else needing them. Hi, I'm very, very pleased today to have a very interesting guest, personal friend of mine, and a, and a person who's made quite an impact here in Israel. My guest today is Ben Korn. Ben is a professor of oncology at Tel Aviv University School of Medicine, and he's also chairman of the Institute of Radiotherapy at Sarasky Medical Center in Tel Aviv. He is the co-founder of Life's Door, Gisha Lachaim, an NGO that has developed innovative approaches to facing illness and loss and has impacted thousands of patients, families, and professionals. In 2011, Dr. Korn was awarded Israeli Citation for Volunteerism by former President Shimon Peres for quote-unquote changing the way people face illness on behalf of life's door. Welcome, Ben. Good to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to, to meet your listeners. All right, it's a little different topic than I usually talk about, but I, I, I feel that anything to do with Israel and, 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 and anything that's so interesting, I, I'd like to share with my listeners. So let me start with my first question. And I recently read an article in Bloomberg that quoted the famous sentence that there is no way to avoid death in taxes. Taxes, obviously, is my business. The article went on to say there actually may be ways to avoid taxes, which affects my business. However, in your business slash work, death is a daily theme. How did you come to the realization that people that work with cancer patients needed more support? Well, um, you know, that really takes me back some because it was a very personal realization um, and a realization that I made sort of in retrospect. When I was 11 years old, um, my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And this was not what, as an oncologist, I can jokingly say, the prostate cancer that we all, that we all know and love. And it, was, it was not a slow-growing tumor. It was a prostate cancer in a young man that really moved aggressively throughout his body. And my parents, who were very loving and wanted to protect myself and my siblings, did their best to hide this harsh reality from us. So he was a businessman, and he was admitted for chemotherapy at a major cancer center in Manhattan, and we were told he was away on a business trip. And it wasn't until the very end that they finally brought us in. And um, when he died, uh, it was remarkable to me to see how uh, it really paralyzed everyone that was in my orbit. It didn't matter if you were a friend of mine in class. It didn't matter if you were the rabbi in the community, the physicians who took care of him. Really, nobody knew what to say to us. And it made me realize there was this glaring gap um, in the system, that people weren't being supported. And I assumed it was just a matter of time before that would be taken care of. So I applied to medical school, you know, somehow got in. And I thought I was doing that to cure prostate cancer. And... The first articles that I wrote as a, uh, a research investigator were about prostate cancer, but very quickly I realized that the hole that I identified when I was 11 years old hadn't really been filled. Nobody was addressing these issues that were bothering me and destroying so many others. And that's when I realized there had to be a way to start systematically tackling the problem, developing a more supportive and embracing network. Uh, the reality is, you mentioned Israel, that I went through the motions as a cancer physician for about 10 years, 
And it wasn't until I reached, you know, Israeli soil with, um, with you know, my soulmate and wife, um, Devorah, that all of a sudden, you know, we caught a bit of an entrepreneurial bug and we realized that it was time to stop talking about these ideas and to start implementing them. And that's how the um, organization was was really founded. Um, I would also like to say, though, since you you, know, you talked about, um, I guess, you know, taxes and death, um, and you mentioned, of course, that uh, taxes, you know, is what you do. It's it's amazing how, just as human beings, we're very good at denying the reality of our of our mortality. And I'm I'm not trying to be morose about it. I had a case, like I just mentioned to you, about three days ago that I was discussing with my with my me- with my medical students. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so with somebody with a, a very advanced form of lung cancer, as well as component of a uh, mesothelioma. Anyway, so I started talking to the students without any asking questions and saying, you know, what was it in this guy's past that when you look at it, when you look at him, you realize it was inevitable that that he was going to die. So one of the students said, well, I took a social history and I know he was a smoker. He had smoked two packs of cigarettes ever since he was in high school. And we realized, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to die from lung cancer. And then another student said, oh, I took a history, and I know he worked um, you know, with asbestos, and maybe that's how he got the mesothelioma. But again, that's not a one-to-one thing. Another one talked about the family history, how both his parents had cancer. The answer to my question, which was an unfair question, was that the one event in his life um, from which we knew he was going to die, which we knew with certainty, that event was birth. Mm-hmm. And that's a very harsh reality for us, but being human, being mortal, we actually, at some point, other than some abrupt, unexpected motor vehicle accident, have to be able to accept the fact that there's a finitude in our lifetime, and we can choose to ignore it, we can choose to say, well, we'll get there, or on some level, we can begin to say, as much as you know, we talk about a good life, is it a point where I'm going to have to talk about a good death for the sake of making my life that much better? So on the one hand, it really does sound, you know, very deep and gloomy. On the other hand, I say it because most people, and there are actually statistics on this, when they understand that they're not going to live forever, they find ways to really enjoy their life more. In fact, one of the ironies is that when you poll cancer patients, many of them will talk to you about how their quality of life increased after they were given a diagnosis of cancer when they compare the quality of life they had before they were diagnosed. It's fascinating, and, and it leads me to my next question because, you know, you're talking about the, the person themselves dying or perhaps their their close family or kin, but what you obviously observed was also people taking care of cancer patients, and and, and they were also being affected by, by this march to death, if I could call it that. And how, how receptive were, were your colleagues to an idea like this? Were, were they needed help or support, if you want to call it that? Well, you're right on the money. You know, the revolution in cancer medicine over the past decade has been a molecular revolution because of the new biology. And it's really stimulating science. And uh, if you have any kind of a scientific bent, whether it's reading popular scientific magazines or science fiction, you're just amazed at the things that we can do, you know, ever since really decoding the, the human genome. It's really led to a lot of progress. But unfortunately, that's created a hierarchy, and people look at that as the more alluring aspect of cancer medicine and forget about sort of the low-tech dimensions and very often don't want to hear about it. 
I just finished doing a survey with uh, Dr. Ezra Hahn at the University of Toronto. We looked at the, the 70 cancer centers in the United States, and we looked at their taglines, their slogans that they're used for marketing. And we were able to break down their slogans into three different domains. There were centers like MD Anderson Cancer Center, that's arguably one of the biggest cancer centers in Houston, Texas, and their slogan is, Making Cancer History. So it's an incredible double entendre about how good they are. They're so good that cancer is going to be passe. Huh. Then on the other extreme, you have another famous cancer center in New York called Memorial, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And their slogan is, Specializing in You. So they, they don't even mention cancer in their tagline. Um, they're much more, at least from what their uh, motto says, they're much more about the care for the patient. And then there's what we call a hybrid. In other words, there's cure-type slogans like MD Anderson and Houston. There's care-type slogans like what Memorial says. And in the middle, there's University of Utah. And their slogan is changing the DNA of cancer care. It's kind of in the middle. So what I'm saying is we basically were able to conclude that there's a bit of an identity crisis that's going on among my colleagues right now. We sort of don't know where we are. On the one hand, we have this scientific explosion and all this data that's coming at us and all these new drugs. On the other hand, we're always told that the patient needs to be in the center of our universe. And is there a conflict between those two? I don't think there is, but you find that people tend to gravitate to the extremes. And there's a, there's a discomfort when it comes to the caring side because we're not trained in that. Now, it's true that today's medical students all have seminars on how to improve communication skills and be more empathetic. Um, but two things. One, we don't know how effective any of those courses are. Second, even if they're extremely effective, it means that less than 5% of practicing physicians in 2016 ever had that kind of training. So we have to do it. We're playing catch-up right now, and we're trying to find a way that we can say there's no contradiction between being a up-to-date scientific-type oncologist in my field and also really caring about the patient, really caring about the family. And the real irony is that as much as it's hard to get this message through to my colleagues, it would help them because there was a survey that came out of the Mayo Clinic about a half a year ago, and they found when asking physicians to answer simple questionnaires that about 70%, really about two-thirds of physicians in my field said they were outright burnt out. In fact, a third of them said that at some point they actually entertained notions that you would be able to classify as suicidal ideation. So it's a tough business. It's, it's really hard. When people say to me, how could you be a cancer doctor? Sometimes I ask that question to myself. It's very challenging. I, I I believe that, and I think it's uh, you know that what you said the slogan for the the, the Utah uh, mm-hmm. Cancer Center. Uh, it would seem that what you've developed or what you've built the Gisha Lachaim that would they would be very receptive there. Right. So, so some of them are, but we we need to be able to really find a way to to show people that you can have that synthesis, and that's it's not such an easy sell. And, and just to finish, I think it would really help the doctor himself or herself. I think that if we were able to infuse, I mean, I don't have to tell you, you meet with professionals all the time, and I know how much you enjoy speaking to people, not just about what they do, but why they do it, and how they got to do what they do. So when you're in a job, you know, there's certain criteria that have to be fulfilled, like getting a paycheck that can help sustain your family. But you also, I think, have to find joy and meaning in what you do. And I believe that if we could infuse some of the kinds of um, 
meaning-oriented techniques that we work on in our organization, that people would have a lot more gratification in their jobs. So without saying how much impact Gisha Lachem has had yet, but how does the cancer patient care in Israel compare to the rest of the Western world? Well, the cancer patient, you know, himself or herself, um, first of all, is a very sophisticated cancer patient because, as you know, there's, there's really no one who doesn't have a smartphone. There's no one who hasn't come in having surfed the Internet and, uh, you know, acquired about 80% of whatever knowledge full professors have in the academic medical centers here. Um, but I think what they learned very quickly is that the level of care uh, really compares uh, with the level of care that's disseminated at any of the great European or American medical centers. And the way I can prove that objectively is to say, first of all, that when you look around at international meetings, there's a disproportionate representation of Israeli scientists that are making oral presentations and, and giving lectures. And in addition, a softer piece of data, there's an organization in Israel called RCCS, it's an acronym, and basically they provide three second opinions to cancer patients, including second opinions to international experts, to see if the patient diagnosed with cancer um, needs to leave Israel. And over the years, it's, it's, the organization functions about four years, there's been less than 5% of patients that have actually had to pick up and, and go overseas. Wow. That's an amazing thing because... That's yeah, phenomenal. it really yeah. is. And I know in my field, which is, as you said before, radiation oncology, there's only one treatment, which is called proton beam therapy, which doesn't exist here. Whereas when I went back into um, you know, clinical medicine 12 years ago, that wasn't the case. But in the last decade, there's just been an explosion um, of the technologies and an incredible improvement in the care that we can provide. All right, so let me push the conversation in a direction. We're all familiar with the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Where does the emotion of hope come into play when dealing with serious illness? How much does hope have an impact in the healing process? That, that's a great question. I, I think it has a tremendous impact. I'll start by bursting the bubble a little bit in terms of saying that um, there have been a couple of attempts to look at not so much hopefulness, but optimism. Uh, there are scales to measure both optimism and hope. We can talk in a second about the differences between those two. Um, they mostly looked at lung cancer populations to see if the more optimistic had a better outcome. And they really didn't. But it's very hard to do that kind of a study. It's very hard to control for people that are more or less hopeful at the beginning and to, to understand the impact. Plus, I'm not necessarily sure that survival you know, five-year survival rate, ten-year survival rate should be our only endpoint. I think we need to be really looking at quality of life endpoints um, as well. And I think there it's remarkable to see how hopeful people can really change their sense of well-being. And when I say hope, I think it's very important to, to define our terms. We make a mistake when we um, restrict the definition of hope. My colleagues, if you ask them, would basically tell you that there's an equation, which is to say that hope equals cure. Well, that is a problem because even if you go on the American Cancer Society website and you believe, and I guess I do, that about 60% of cancer patients are curable today, that would mean that for the 40% that have incurable disease, that there's no hope. I don't think that's a good thing. I believe that all patients, all human beings, are entitled to hope. So what I mean by hope is not just the ability to be cured or the fantasy of living forever. 
I'm talking about a process of, of really goal-directed thinking that people can think in the future about goals that they want to get to, figure out what the path is to get to those goals, and have the motivation to set out on that pathway. And I think as a doctor, what I have to do is understand that part of my job is to help people um, become hopeful, to create hope with them, and to sustain that hope. I, I view that as part of my job, and I'd like to infect other people. I'd like to have like an epidemic of hopefulness and see if we can, we can bring that about. And a lot of what organization does is to try and um, create these um, hope enhancement techniques to push them forward. It's a, it's a fascinating insight. Uh, I think most of us don't think of hope in that sense, and certainly when you refer to the to the 40% uh, that may have some type of terminal cancer. But I do want to just follow up, and I'm going to quote a famous Chicago billionaire, he's no longer with us, named Clement Stone, who professed about the power of positive thinking. Is positive thinking the same as being hopeful? You referred to it a minute ago. Can hopeful be learned? Is there a theory behind it? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Um, just, the answer is yes. Hopefulness can be learned. So first, very quickly, we'll make a distinction between optimism and hopefulness, because we mentioned those terms before. They're not synonyms. It's the difference between what's called a trait and a state. In other words, optimism um, is something you either have or you don't. You're sort of born with this view of the world that's very positive. That I can't teach you. But hopefulness, especially when we look at it in terms of the goals, the goal-directed thinking that we discussed before, that's something that for most people I can have an impact upon. And the first person who thought about this actually got his start in the world of positive psychology. It was a psychologist at the University of Kansas named Rick Snyder. And he was the first one to talk about goals and pathways. Now, he did very little work in cancer patients, but it's remarkable to look at the populations that he studied. He studied, for instance, um, students that weren't doing well in school. He studied recently unemployed people. He studied prisoners. He studied, you like this, um, because he was at the University of Kansas, and ever since the days of Will Chamberlain, uh, that basketball team was expected to get to the NCAA Final Four uh, every year. And if they didn't, he realized there was a problem with the Jayhawks players at the University of Kansas. So he studied whether he could make University of Kansas Jayhawks basketball players, men and women, more hopeful. And in each of those cases, he found he could have an impact on them. He died prematurely, and he was just about to start studying cancer patients. He wrote one article on it um, and saw some, some encouraging hints. And after he died, the last 20 years, Hope Research has kind of been in hibernation. And what we're trying to do is to sort of you know, reawaken that great bear of hope and to see what we can do with it. I, I understand there will soon be the Global Day of Hope. How does your organization relate to this event? Right. So we started this last year, and we got a great response. It's a social media-driven campaign, mostly by Facebook. And what we try to do, in some ways it was inspired by the Ice Bucket Challenge that a lot of us participated in uh, to increase ALS awareness uh, a year ago. And the idea is very simple, simply that um, you, know, you just take out your cell phone and you say what it is that might make you hopeful. And this is not just a strip to patients. It's anything in your life that you believe would make you more hopeful, and then you sort of tag the next person and ask them to do the same. And um, this year we're working, you know, in coordination with several centers um, in the United States and several um, um, players like uh, the behavioral uh, psychologist, uh, uh, Don Ariely, who said that we could link this to his website. And we expect to be able to have a tremendous outpouring of, of hopefulness, kind of what I said before about the 
epidemic um, of hopefulness. And we plan to launch it, as we did last year, on the first day of spring. We think that's an incredibly hopeful uh, time of year. So about two weeks before, if you go onto our, onto our website, um, on the right store, you'll be able to see um, exactly how to, to enter that, that world. Okay. And we hope to have a brisk, brisk commitment there. All right. So we've talked about hope. We've talked about optimism. So I'm going to throw in one other element. A- after 9-11, one of my favorite country artists wrote a song called Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? The song was asking about how you felt at the moment you heard the news of the Twin Towers falling. I assume that when you have to tell a person that they have cancer, that that person world stops for a moment. The song offers some comforting lyrics which state, quote, I talk to God, and I remember this from when I was young, faith, hope, and love are some good things he gave us, and the greatest is love. Does a person need all three of these to heal, or is one of them enough to cope with a serious illness? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I... Um don't know if you need all of them. I, I think all of them would help. I, I, and I think, um, first of all, there's some interesting work that's being done right now about the relationship between um, faith and hope. I'll get to love in a second. As, as you can imagine, I, mean, I consider myself a religious person, a person of faith. There's a lot of overlap that between belief in general and hopefulness. In other words, people who are sort of rooted in having a belief in some kind of a large force, let's say, in a god, um, they sort of have a head start when it comes to hopefulness. They have, first of all, things that they can do, like prayer. They have faith-based communities. They can actually speak to you with a straight face about miracle, that they believe in miracle. And that's, that's an amazing thing because very often the people that I'm dealing with, as you say, when the world collapses after diagnosis with cancer is rendered, are, are just looking for anything, including a miracle. So it's, it's really looked at in, in, in very um, straightforward, um, matter-of-fact uh, terms that we can pray for miracles. So I think it's a, it's a great advantage. There was a study from Italy that just came out a few months ago. Um, I liked it and I didn't like it. And it pointed out again that religious people are more likely to be hopeful people. It also pointed out that um, people with less formal education tended to be more hopeful. And I, I didn't like the implication that it was kind of a simple-minded person who might be more hopeful. I think you can be very sophisticated and be hopeful too. But I do think religious people sort of have the leg up when it comes to hopefulness. It's not to say a secular person can't be hopeful. They certainly can be. The idea of love is a really important one. Uh, by the way, one of those cancer centers, which is Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, had their tagline, love versus cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think love is amazingly powerful, and I think, uh, you know, I, I, I have the benefit of knowing you and your family, and you, know, you have tremendous love in your life, and and, and, and we all, I think, really are nourished by love. I think it's a fantastic thing. I will make the following point, which will be a little bit controversial. I believe that those are both very um, powerful emotions. I think I can make a case that hope is even a more human emotion than is love. I say that because, first of all, in the animal kingdom, you have models for, for love. Now, you don't have love that you know, human beings have. You don't have love that can um, cross generations. You don't have the lion loving his grandchildren. That, that doesn't really exist to the best of our knowledge. You can have the mother, you know, doting and loving her cub, but it, does, it, it kind of ends there mm-hmm. after, after one generation. To hope, there's no model in the animal yeah. kingdom. There are things that are analogous, like resilience. Um, there's actually a very interesting monkey model for that. But there's nothing that's 
um, directly uh, allowing me to measure uh, hopefulness in animals. So what I'm saying is it's, it's a truly uh, human emotion because, as we said before, it's very much predicated on your ability to think about the future, your ability to access the past, to think about challenges you had, um, hurdles that you overcame, and to use that as an inspiration to drive you forward and to say that now, um, as I'm older and I have newer challenges, maybe more difficult and more difficult challenges, I can still get through them, partly because I'm egged on by my success in the past and partly because I'm a creative person and I can think of new things. So hope is even available for people that don't have others to love in their lives and others that, that love them. So it's an amazing thing because hope is almost always you know, very creative and I think it's always very wonderful. Yeah, I, I really... Uh connect to, to, to what you're saying about that. So let me now move to uh, what my listeners can do to help Gisha Lachaim, your organization, volunteering, donations, projects that need sponsors. I know you're involved in the Jerusalem Marathon. Uh, right. What do you need from people? We could, we could use all of that. Um, even if we just uh, managed to get some awareness through this podcast, we've uh, done a lot. Um, but, you know, our... our um, a website, lifestore.org, and it talks about the Jerusalem Marathon. It talks about different volunteering opportunities that we have where people can get together with what are called spiritual care providers and go into um, uh, you know, nursing homes and uh, service the elderly. Just just listen. Just be, be training training and how to be volunteer so we can train you how to listen. The impact of listening is is remarkable. When you're a good listener, you can change another person's personality. Um, and we can teach you how to do that. If there's somebody who, uh, you know, who these things resonate for and has the ability to make donations for us to move our programs forward, whether it's direct donations or to run with us in a couple of weeks during the Jerusalem Marathon, you know, that would all be welcome. And we'd be, we'd be deeply appreciative. And if they need help, if they're other professionals, medical service providers, or, or people with cancer or families, is, is your website also the, the place to go to? Sure is, sure is, and they'll be able to, to jump in there, and uh, I think we can very quickly connect with them and, and hopefully really do something for them. Well, I, I thank you very, very much. As you said, it's lifesdoor.org. Uh, everything uh, that you want to know about your organization and how you can help it or take advantage of all the things that you offer. And uh, I really appreciate it. I think this was a very special conversation for me personally and I think for my listeners. And uh, I, I hope you hear from a lot of them. Thanks so much. And thanks to all your staff for making this happen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.pstein.com or look for Philip Stein & Associates on Facebook and LinkedIn.